Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The History Ticks is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and other spoken word projects available online. And just for being a History Chicks listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to audible.com slash chicks. That's audible.com slash C-H-I-C-K-S. And now, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a baby queen, who started on her royal course by fleeing a violent scene. Her mates were Mary, 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 and hey, another Mary. And off she went to live her life, the King of France to Mary, the King of France to Mary. Don't be fooled by those harps. This story does not have a happy ending. Actually, it goes straight downhill from here. The end. Let's talk about Mary, Queen of Scots. But first, let's drop her into history. And in a departure from our usual method, we thought that her life intertwined with so many other episodes that we've already covered that the best way to learn about the world when she was born is to listen to Elizabeth I, 43 and 44, Catherine of Aragon, episode 22, The Last Four Wives of Henry VIII, which is episode 24, and our teeny tiny tuner tutorial. Say it again. <laughs> I loved that the first time through. I'm loving it again. Say it again. And our teeny tiny tutor tutorial. Tutorial. <laughs> Princess Mary of Scotland was born on December 8, 1542, at Linlithgow Palace. She was the third but the only surviving child of King James V of Scotland and his wife, the Queen, known to history as Mary of Guise. So let's give you a quick background on both Papa and Mama before we go on. James V was, as you might have guessed, the son of James IV. Ten points for you. <laughs> but Papa's mother was one Margaret Tudor, older sister to our old friend, Henry VIII. Papa had been the king of Scotland since his own father died when he was only 17 months old. So his early life was mostly directed by others, notably his stepfather, who basically kidnapped him in order to be the boss. He was very early, as a distraction, introduced to the ladies, and his illegitimate children were legendary, at least nine, and if their mothers were daughters of noblemen, they mostly were, Aim high. They were given positions and fortunes to match. Remember, Henry VIII did the same thing for his major illegitimate child, the Duke of Richmond. Right. It was a thing. Take responsibility, yeah. give him a title, etc. But you have to have an heir. You have to have a legitimate heir. And James V was actually entitled to a French bride under the terms of the Treaty of Rouen. I just wanted to say that. I don't normally... You did that so beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do it again. The R's hard. Um, but Scotland and France had been in what they call the Old Alliance, I mean, for 300 years at this point, over 300 years. It was a friendship, both economic and political, that really kept England in check. England's been the thorn in the side of France for who knows how long. And Scotland's, you know, right there. So, entitled, I hate this... That, that was part of the contract, but whatever. Entitled to his French bride, James married Madeleine uh, of France, 
But even her father said she wasn't strong, and sure enough, she wasn't. Everyone thinks she might have already had tuberculosis when she got on the boat to come over. She only was queen for two months. Yeah, going to Scotland, the weather is not exactly the same as it is in France, and that would have done her in. So another bride was offered from a good family, and the king of France would provide a dowry equal to that of a princess. She was a widow. She already had two sons. So they know she's a baby maker. So what could be better? So Mama, Mary of Guise, intelligent, fun-loving, and nearly six feet tall, was the oldest daughter of the Duke of Guise. This was a powerful and influential family in France. Some say too powerful. She had been married very happily to the Duke of Longueville, and just before our story opens, Marie had lost both her husband and one of her young sons to illness, and was really just retooling and kind of satisfied with just looking out for the interests of her little son, the new duke. I'm not going to be involved in international politics. This is the end. That's a good place to be in this time, in this age, I think. But this proposal from the French king came down the road. Proposal. It's kind of an order. Yeah. When it comes to your own king. Proposal is like polite way to say. Really. Pack your bags. Yeah, exactly. Well, also followed by a proposal from Henry VIII, who had just lost his wife, Jane Seymour. Now, given the choice between Henry VIII and James V, which one would you go with? Yeah, I, uh, like I said, I think there must have been giant, giant pressure brought to bear because Marie of Guise left her then three-year-old son, Francis, in France. I mean, you can't just airlift a French duke out of France. No. So she married James V, and Scotland was a little rough, but you know, some decorating, some wine importing, girl I know, some gardeners and um, French doctors and some cooks for sure. Boom! You know, we can make a home here. Though Papa was kind of this uber bachelor guy and not that warm, Mama had two sons, James, of course, and Robert. Um, the succession seemed secure. Then Robert and James both died almost at once. No heir at all. And now Henry VIII of England, uncle of the king, wanted Papa to meet up to think about taking the riches of the Catholic Church, which was going so well monetarily over there in England. Number one, James wasn't really into that. And number two, now that he had no heirs, was he about to go anywhere near old Mr. Duplicity? No, thank you. Even though Marie of Guise Mama was pregnant again. And, and there was no reason to think it wasn't a son. Henry VIII was so incensed, maybe at the failure of a kidnapping scheme, that the military was mobilized to run up there and show the Scots what was what. And with no time to appeal to its traditional ally, France, you know, the one with all the troops, James V, Papa, his forces went down horribly. Horribly. Oh, it was a bloodbath, and they got 23 of James's noblemen and tossed them into an English prison. This was so bad at the end that his troops were notoriously running all over the place to try to find women to surrender to, because they thought maybe the women wouldn't hack them to pieces rather than... So, I mean, they wanted to surrender to some innocuous peasant people rather than deal with the aftermath of what had happened here. Yeah. So Papa just went to pieces, like this giant mental breakdown, um, leading to physical collapse. I mean, he was sad about the death of one of his particular friends in the battle, but this is just hysteria or something. Yeah, yeah, he lost the will to live, I think is a good way to put it. I guess. So there he is, sick in bed, and the messengers brought him the news. Congratulations, you have a daughter. Wah, wah, wah. Well, and he is reported to have said, though, 
we are not in the room, but he is purported to have said, farewell, adieu, it came with the last, it'll go with the last. He is referring to long ago, Robert the Bruce's daughter was the mother of the Stuart dynasty. And I guess he expected, though he's wrong, prognosticator king, you're wrong. That's a spoiler. But it didn't end with the last, just so you know. But six days later, the king was dead, and the queen was six days old. And so, we come back to the subject of today's show. Mary, Queen of Scots, tiny, premature, and the wrong sex, of course, but also, indisputably, the new monarch, who became the sixth Scottish ruler in a row to become the boss before their majority. This is a long history of children taking the throne, since like the 14th century. That's over 100 years with baby kings and baby... Oh, I wrote this down. Um, I'm just going to call him, they're all James. So I just wrote down J1. That's kind of disrespectful of me. J1 was 9. J2 was 7. J3 was 9. J4 was 15. <gasps> wow. That's the closest we get. Yeah. And J5 was 1.5. So as a result of all this baby king intermissions <laughs> while they grow up, mm. the king of Scotland had sort of become not... The absolute king, like you think of. The king of the mountain, like in Spain or in France or even England. But kind of the first among equals. These old family and clan loyalties and rivalries were very pronounced and would come into play over and over and over. You really have to know your genealogy. And whose last name was what before she got married? And this intricate byplay of enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. The stuff that goes on. But they're, help, they're ruling together, in essence. You know, there's kind of a balance of power between the nobility and the monarchy. Nobility were all doing things for their own self-interest. They weren't going, oh, what's best for Scotland? No, they're going, what's best for me? So the battle here really was for the regency. Who is going to hold power while the baby queen grows up? So here are the main contenders. Mama, um, I would like to hereby insert a great shout of mocking laughter in a Scottish accent. I could have done the mocking laughter. I can't do the Scottish accent. <laughs> well, she's pro-French, obviously. Obviously. You know. And then Catholic Cardinal Beaton, also super pro-French. And then the Protestant Earl of Arran, since he's a James, as so many are, we're just going to call him Arran. Let's do that. He is actually the heir. If Mary fails to thrive, as they say, he... Uh, that is that a conflict of interest right there? <laughs> Putting... The man who's going to inherit the throne in charge of the six-day-old queen. Frail queen. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and his legitimacy was actually questioned by another family called the Lennoxes, but we're not going to get involved in that because that is too compliqué. And Henry VIII over in England wanted to get a hold of Scotland, like always, but hey, I have a bright idea. Why don't we betroth your queen to my son? Remember him, everybody, Edward? And you can send her over to us when she's 10, and we can all just be one happy family. Sure. And then Henry VIII attacked some Scottish castles, and all the Scots came together to say, Forget you! I'm your son! <laughs> or whatever they said. And they, they flat out crowned their baby queen at nine months old. So now began... At the refusal of this betrothal, what was called Henry VIII's, quote, rough wooing of Scotland. Basically, classic Henry VIII psychology here. 
four years of terrorist attacks on Scottish targets to convince Scotland to give in on the marriage issue. Let me bomb the piss out of you so you'll hand me your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And so her guardians are moving Mary all over the place to keep Henry VIII from kidnapping her. Stirling Castle, Dunkeld Castle, Inc. Mahone. I don't know how to say that. Priory? I don't look at me. Uh, it's super romantic. It's like a castle on an island with willow trees. And this whole thing was a wacky game of high-stakes chess. Even after Henry VIII died, the English continued to press until the absolutely devastating but amazingly named battle of Pinky Kluch. <laughs> I love to say that word. Kluch. It sounds like something from a cartoon. I think it's a valley with rocky cliffs all around. It's awful specific. There it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Scotland was for the chop, basically. This is like Scotland, the end. Oh, ho! Henry II, the new king over in France, had a chess piece of his own. Hey, mes me, I have a son. I have a son. He is three. What do you say, huh? Yeah, we've been together before. Let's keep this thing going. Okay, sounds great. We're going to send her right over. You know, merci, hooray, whatever. <laughs> there was really no other options, but it's a good option, you know, because then they get Scotland, you know, under their rule. So, cool. So, five-year-old Queen Mary is sent for her safety, Scotland's safety, and everyone's relief, off to France to be brought up to be their queen. And I'm just thinking, poor mama. Poor mama. Remember the son she had to leave behind in France? Her two surviving children have to go live with other people for political reasons when they were little. Because Mama is staying back in Scotland to keep the country for Mary when she gets for when she gets old enough. At least look after yeah. her interests as much as she, she can. Much as, yeah, and she was very political, and you know yeah. she was really smart, and she could get things done. So it was a it was a good move for her. She wasn't some wishy washy queen. You know, she could hold things together in a very rugged, politically rugged. Oh, that's good <laughs> environment. Yeah, people did respect her. So, little Mary went with a retinue of lords and also young people, including a couple older half-brothers. Remember that Papa was a sower of wild oats. Okay. Is that a weird thing? You're the son of a king, older than this little girl heir, and you are no way, no how, anywhere in the succession. That has got to be a weird and you're in her um, orbit. Also in the entourage, the famous four Marys, Beaton, Seton, Fleming, and Livingston. Every time I hear that, I always think of Heathers. Oh, well, I think they were nicer than They Heathers. were nicer than Heathers, but still. They were the daughters of high-ranking noblemen. This was actually considered quite an honor, and it was common enough for young Scottish people to be sent for finishing over to their friends in France. I mean, it wasn't like... Nobody had ever gone before. It was just the fact that these were very high-ranking, all-in-one group. And their mothers were had come over from France with Mary's mother, you know, and they had all married Scottish men and had babies and named them all Mary, much to our delight here. <laughs> well, incidentally, I get, okay, speaking of mothers, and also speaking of illegitimate half-siblings, Mary Fleming's own mama was actually a half-sister of Queen Mary's papa. Hmm. How do I explain that? <laughs> so, Queen Mary's papa and Mary's mama were half-sisters and half-brothers. This is weird family tree. Oh, it gets more complicated, I too. know, it does. Well, anyway, so technically Mary Fleming had royal blood, too, only, you know, diluted. So the crossing was considered a hazardous one. There were thoughts that the English might try to intercept the ships and rough seas and... Here I was, worrying about the first year of unaccompanied kid trick-or-treating. 
<gasps> oh, so you, did you do that this year? Jet went away with a whole baby gang, and we didn't see them. We were watching the Royals game. Are you kidding me? <laughs> in a giant screen in somebody's front yard in the, what the heck, 41-degree temperature. Yeah. But the kids all just, like, literally peace out at 30 of them in a gang. Oh, my goodness. How safe is that? That's awesome. And Jet came back with, had to be, nine pounds of candy because there was n- nobody to stop them continuing. That's right. <laughs> they came back staggering under the weight of Butterfingers. And did you take your mommy tax? I did not because candy's not my weakness. Oh. I am as safe as kittens with candy in the house. That's true. Yeah, I'm I'm not too bad. My 10-year-old didn't want to go trick-or-treating. He wanted to sit on the front steps with me and pass out candy. And he said, and I quote, I had more fun doing this than trick-or-treating last year. Ooh. So not motivated by candy at my house either. I don't know that he's so motivated by candy, but he was motivated by running free in the night. I know. <laughs> with his buddies. Yeah. Anyway, back to France. <laughs> so, um... So poor Mama, what a worry, what a worry, really. Mary, when she got to her new home, they wrote back that she she's the only one that wasn't seasick, and isn't she lovely? It's like the princess and the pea. Like, everyone else vomited, but our queen was so regal, she kept it all inside. Yeah, <laughs> sure she did. You guys. So they thought in France that she was exceptionally pretty and charming and healthy and how romantic was this that this little tiny beauty had had to flee from danger? I think the French kind of regarded Scotland as the Wild West, so she'd escaped some kind of gold mining town, <laughs> and the rough men, and this tiny child had to escape. She's like the heroine of the story. Oh, definitely. When she arrived in France, Henry II gave little Queen Mary precedence over even his own daughters, princesses of France. Even her clothes were more elaborate, Mm -hmm. made of more expensive material, because the wife of their brother would ultimately outrank them. I think that's reassuring to his intentions. And she was a queen already. When Mary arrived in France, she went into really open arms and a really a circle of protection around her. Her grandmother was there. Her uncles were there looking out for her on one side. At court, she had Francis's mother, Catherine de' Medici, as well as King Henry's mistress for forever. They were together for so long, Diane de Poitiers. So these women were helping from the court and her French family was helping Mary from, you know, the aristocracy side. So also indispensable, she had Mama back in Scotland to handle all the icky things and in fact would send her blank paper with her signature so Mama could more efficiently handle things on her behalf. She saw her mother for the very last time when she was seven. And the months they spent together made such an impression on her. I mean, she carried that with her the rest of her life. God, can you imagine? The last time they saw each other, Mary was seven. I know. Mm. That is really sad. So she had, like I said, a nice circle of protection. I will tell you, her Marys, and indeed most of the Scottish retinue, were accommodated elsewhere and kind of replaced with French attendants because of the whole Wild West aspect. Yeah, well, you can't really Frenchify a young queen with the, you know, the influencers being right there to keep her accent bad. She shared a room with little three-year-old Princess Elizabeth, who later married the Philip of Spain, who was married to Mary one of England. Oh, what a tangled (laughs) little I know, this tree is just getting... 
It's like a circle sometimes. There's a tree. It's called Jacob's Walking Stick. And the branches kind of twist and go every which way, kind of like Medusa's hair. That's this family tree. Well, her relatives, rather than objecting to her being brought up so much at court, they thought, you know, rooming with Princess Elizabeth is the best her prospects could be. She is in the family circle. And they were completely content with her being brought up at court with the children of the king. Among this group of children was also the future King Francis II. Their personalities, Mary and Francis's, were quite opposite, but they got along really well right from the beginning. Mary was bright and charming and well-poised, and like we said before, she's very pretty, um, auburn hair and very fair skin. Francis is shy. He was a bit um, dim, I would say. Um, he wasn't much to look at, I know. He stuttered. Yeah, but they got along very well, and they were essentially raised together in a very loving environment. That's the only way that you're going to get a wife that he is even going to be able to stand is to bring her in at five <laughs> and let him get used to her, because this is not, this is not your lady's man. Okay, so for now, while we're children, here's what we're going to study. We're going to study the Traditional female arts of needlework and drawing and music. Uh, French, let's call this the immersion program. <laughs> Poetry, literature, horsemanship. She's riding horses astride the horses in fancy Italian breeches. Breeches? Breeches. Yeah. It's more safe. You know, she was notorious for being a daring horsewoman, by the way. Uh, falconry, which is not something we think of today. I send our little kids out with a falcon. And no goggles or anything. <laughs> uh, Spanish, Greek, Italian, and Latin. And keeping up with her old language, Scots, which if they'd only had this reference, the French would have compared to Chewbacca trying to talk. Her name had been spelled Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, and she changed it to the French version, S-T-U-A-R-T, is how she began to, to write it. So she was getting really immersed in... The French culture. So we don't think, we say Queen of Scots, but she was really French at heart, you know. And any movie you watch that has the Mary Queen of Scots speaking in a Scottish accent. We're going to blast rain later. She wouldn't have. I don't think. No. I mean, if she was in Scotland, she might. I just don't know. Maybe some people have a really super good ear. And you know how those people have a flexible ear. And the second you go someplace, you pick up the accent. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing I can think of. But she ought to have spoken English with a French accent. Okay. As far as Mary was concerned, this life in France was a sea of tranquility, dancing, fabulous clothing, serenity, deference, moving from fabulous palace to fabulous palace with the king's children, mostly so they can spring clean the filth after you. That's how come everybody always moved. It's not as romantic. (laughs) Yeah. Starting to get a funk around here. Let's move to another castle. Well, one thing she had no training in at all. Which uh, Cousins Mary one and Elizabeth one over there in England had had in spades was adversity training. Adversity training might have been more useful than all of that Greek. Here's a little foreshadowing for you. Oh, that's an excellent point. Uh, a yeah. life in serenity is not good prep for later. No. At 12, she was given her own household. At 15, she was given her own husband. But right before the marriage happened, Mary was urged by the king and by her relatives in France to sign a series of agreements kept secret from Scotland. It's kind of sketch. Yeah, a little bit. In which the French, um, now they did agree they're going to give the crown of Scotland to the next Scottish heir, still Erin, just like on day six of her life, if she died without children. That part seemed fair. 
uh, you know. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and pass that on to the next That's guy. That's a tradition, bloodline. Yeah. But get this. Also, she agreed to give her claim to the throne of England to France if she died with no children. Her claim to what? Yeah, King Henry, what are we going to call him? Henri, so we don't confuse him with Henri VIII. Henri Le Dieu. Um, was a big fan of the thought of Mary being the successor in line to the British throne. Why? Because they were Catholic and didn't view the marriage to Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother, as legitimate. So that put Mary as the granddaughter of a Tudor, as the next blood heir. Yeah, remember our Tudor series. No one had disputed over in England Edward's right to follow Henry VIII. He is a legitimate child who has a pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, we have an heir. But he died. That's inconvenient. And now you have this childless Mary I over there on the throne, and her possibly, slash, probably illegitimate sister, like Susan said, Anne Boleyn's daughter Elizabeth, was next in line. Now see, Catholics thought Elizabeth was illegitimate. And if Henry VIII's legitimate line peters out, the crown of England traditionally would pass to Henry VIII's oldest sister's line. So remember who Queen Mary, our Scottish Queen Mary's grandma is? Henry VIII's oldest sister. And who is the senior heir? Mary, Queen of Scots. So you can see, if you thought Elizabeth Tudor was illegitimate, you just might naturally assume, well, there you go. Rightful queen. Right. Finney. Right. So she had a claim, for sure. And King Henri was going to take advantage of that. So Mary and Francis were married in Notre Dame Cathedral. That was epic. And no fancy. And um, Mary wore a white dress, which in France was the color of Queen's morning dress. Not morning as in... Wake up, the birds are singing. Morning, as in <laughs> dun, things have gone down. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, that kind of morning. Sorry. If you start, you got to commit. Do it dun. again. Yay! Okay, so um, Mary insisted upon it. She loved the way she looked. In white. Oh, yeah. She would have been striking with her dark auburn hair and her fair skin. It's just this vision, like an angel almost. However, it was kind of jarring. Like a bride in a black dress would be now. It was a little bit like, oh, oh, uh, hello. <laughs> it was just a little bit shocking. And she also wore her hair down, which was also bucking convention. She was kind of a rebel. Uh, it was a three-day spectacular spectacular with jousts. In which somebody lost his eye, and everyone thought, oh, well, that's just how it goes. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and feasts and jewels and a crown too heavy for the bride's head that had to be lifted off halfway through. Foreshadowing. Oh, history. You wag. <laughs> Francis was given what's called the crown matrimonial. So he was fully Scotland's king now, and if Mary died, he stayed the king. His signature was on the left of the official documents, i.e., he's the boss. Francis and Mary were now the king dauphin. And the queen, Dauphiness. Is that the word? Well, it's Dauphine. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, be... I've never seen that word in print before. No, I know, but it's all over. Like, in England, she was the Dauphiness. Oh, okay. But, uh, what would it be in French? Roi Dauphin and Reine Dauphine. So six months or so later, over in this parallel kingdom of England, Queen Mary has died. And Henri II declared his son and daughter-in-law to be king and queen of England to the point where their coats of arms were integrated with the English one and engraved on plate and embroidered on cloths of estate. 
It's like dressing for the job you want. <laughs> well, naturally, Queen Elizabeth was not super happy yeah. no, about that. No, not at all. Not at all. She already had a little battle going on. Especially since there were people in her own country who might rally behind that. That's not cool. So when Mary was 16, King Henry II of France died in a jousting accident. Again, with the jousting, maybe we should just not joust. Yeah, you'd think. But, you know, it's a manly thing to do, that big stick. They needed to make nerf sticks. <laughs> what do you call those sticks? Lances. It's a lance. Hello. <laughs> or like in the Knight's Tale where there were some people that would throw it when they realized that it was the king they were jousting. That's the sound of jousting. Um, so King Francis, age 15, and Queen Mary, age 16, were now the rulers of France and Scotland and just maybe England. Hmm. One thing they didn't have is children and maybe not even a consummation of the royal marriage francis had a medical situation maybe a deformity or maybe hadn't even reached puberty that's kind of why you got to wait a little yeah physically if you look at portraits of them he's very um adolescently stunted (laughs) he's and she looks like you know a young woman and he's looking like you know middle school Well, anyone who has seen a middle school dance can tell you that's pretty common. (laughs) Yeah. And there's plenty of guys that between junior and senior year of high school, it's like transformed. They Mm -hmm. leave Nerdtacular and they come back like Thor. (laughs) But he never got the chance to become Thor. It's a bummer. Well, Mary convinced herself at one point that she was pregnant for a couple of months walking around with a maternity smock on. Hilaire. The Spanish ambassador is like, well, if she is, it's not the king's, you know. (laughs) That delusion was soon over. Uh, Mary made a special point to, I think this is admirable, actually. She made a special point to read and understand and analyze French and Scottish issues. She was really taking her responsibility seriously. And she was known for, like, she would ask for advice. And then she would listen and make notes. And many ambassadors thought, now this, this is a ruler here. This is, they admired her, um... I don't know, her drive, I guess. And her devotion to her her thing. Uh, This might be a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll see exactly what kind of a ruler Mary is. Our sponsor, Audible, would like to give you, no, they would love to give you, a free audiobook download of your choice today when you sign up for their 30-day free trial. To go along with today's show, we have both a fictional and factual recommendation. For the fictional, we recommend The Other Queen by Philippa Gregory. The story is set during the many years of Mary's imprisonment by Queen Elizabeth. What I liked the most about this was those years are usually summed up in just two sentences. Mary was imprisoned for 19 years by her cousin Queen Elizabeth. Then she died. What Philippa Gregory does is fills those years in in this historical fiction. And the nonfiction recommendation is Mary, Queen of Scots by Antonia Fraser. This is the same author that wrote the Marie Antoinette book that Sofia Coppola used to make that beautiful movie. Now, while listening to this recording, I particularly like the words Renaissance and Dynasty. Can you resist it? We could not resist it. Here's what you do to get your own free audiobook, either of those or any one of the over 180,000 titles they have available. Go to audible.com slash chicks. My own membership, you should know, is in its third year. Here it is again, if you didn't have a pen, audible.com slash chicks, that's C-H-I-C-K-S. And we are back. We've almost reached the end of the serendipitous golden childhood of 
Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah. So let's move on to, let's go back to Scotland, shall we? Let's travel through the imaginary space and time <laughs> to see what's happening back home in Scotland. Back home, Mama Marie is kind of losing her grip of control. Scottish Parliament was predominantly Protestant, and they were working with the English to turn Scotland into a Protestant country and make that same break that England had from the church. The Catholics aren't super happy about that. So now you've got Catholic, i.e. French-backed troops, and Protestant, i.e. backed by English troops, racketing around Scotland, causing havoc again. Henry II, you know, Catholic, had tried to stamp out heresy, by which he means Protestantism. Mary's mother had tried to mitigate, really, can we just be temperate here? Can we? And she would try to tamp down any of his requests, and it just wasn't working out. War full-on conflict had broken out. So proposed to end all of this was the Treaty of Edinburgh, in which one of the key proposals was that Mary and Francis would stop using the titles Queen of England and King of England in exchange for peace, basically. They're going to leave Scotland to themselves to heal if you would just stop poking us with that particular stick. Mary never signed it, notably. Right. At 17... Mary's mama died, and Mary was practically brought down by grief, just like her father had done long ago. She was really in a bad, bad place, and this tended to happen to her inconveniently throughout <laughs> her whole life. Her mother-in-law, unbelievably, Catherine de' Medici, was her rock. Now, you'll read that Catherine de' Medici hated Mary. You'll read that she was horrible to her, even wanted her dead, even poisoned her. But during these early times... It was Catherine de' Medici who was most often the person Marie spoke to and took advice from, and they were always together, and in public seemed to be colleagues, if not best friends forever. I think the motivation is Mary's hooked to Francis. Francis is her son. Catherine de' Medici loves nothing more than whatever is going to be good for her son. I think she wanted to guide her son's wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She was brilliant at working together with people who she shouldn't have been working well together with on paper. I mean, all those years with Diane de Poitiers. Well, even Queen Elizabeth's ambassador, Throckmorton, had praises for her at this period of time. And I'm sure Queen Elizabeth just hated the heck out of this. She always had jealousy in her heart for this queen who hadn't had to go through adversity training like herself. <laughs> so Throckmorton sent back, I see her behavior to be such wisdom, such kingly modesty. She thinks herself not too wise, but is content to be ruled by good counsel and wise men. She has a great judgment. Much to be admired, Throckmorton was trying to tell Elizabeth, see how you should behave. Why can't you be more like your cousin Mary? <laughs> That didn't yeah. go down too well. Not, now, a few months after Mama Marie died, Mary's husband, King Francis, developed what looked like to be an ear infection. Mary was at his side. It seems it might not have just been an ear infection. There might, he might have had a brain tumor that did him in, but it presented as an ear infection. But whatever it was, he spiraled really quickly, and he died. So now her best friend, her husband, her co-ruler, her the guy that was keeping her stable in France is gone. And instantly, Mary is the Dowager Queen. And her 10-year-old brother-in-law is the new king. And now what? She's surplus to needs around here. So now she's got a choice to make. Do we go back to Scotland? Do we remarry? Well, she wasn't. I mean, as soon as he died, you know, she was told to give back her jewels. I mean, it was the writing wasn't like hidden on the wall. It was pretty big. Well, now I will tell you 
in the defense of people asking for the jewels. Yeah. Mary did the same thing to Diane de Poitiers. Yes. Mary became queen. She's like, inventory of jewels, please. Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty classic behavior. Like, I need to possess all this no, stuff. But there's a different relationship between the king's mistress and the queen. You know, it's, well, anyway. Whatever. Things could go in pockets <laughs> back to Scotland pretty easily. You'd think. So anyway, according to the terms of her marriage agreement, Mary has properties. She has a title. She has estates. She could stay there. But it would be very hard to dislodge her if she wanted to stay there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, she's mm-hmm. completely legally entitled to park her hind there, never remarry, and owe nobody anything. And she had some time to think about her options. She went into a 40-day private mourning while her mother-in-law is inventorying every brooch and pin <laughs> and bauble. <laughs> well, Catherine admitted she really does want her gone. Now she's a complication. Yes. She just she It's just more stuff to deal with. And, and I don't know that it's personal hatred so much as position. Like, come on now. Just can you please clear the field for me at this point? <laughs> um, but... Yeah, how about this? Speaking of complication, if she married into the Spanish royal house, both France and England have reason to feel threatened. Assorted other bows were floated by. Including her brother-in-law, Charles. Who's 10? <laughs> yeah, so in addition to her brother-in-law, Charles, and possibly uh, Don Carlos, the heir to the Spanish throne, a lot of gentlemen were presented as potential mates for her. You know, we need to get her married and need to establish an alliance and, and some solid foundation. The king of Sweden came up, dukes and sons of nobles. Uh, her uncles in France were kind of pushing towards the Spanish relationship. Unfortunately, at the same time, Catherine was working behind the scenes to make sure that that wasn't going to happen because she wanted her daughter in there, not... Her daughter-in-law um, also offered up were two gentlemen, Henry Stewart, who was Lord Donnelly. Um, he was 16, and he was a cousin of Mary's, and also James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. Can I tell you something about Lord Darnley? His <laughs> mama, I mean, you could basically see her handprints on the back of his back. <laughs> they heard the sad news, and they, quote, sent him to commiserate. With the queen. Offered up, like, in person, and not even just in theory. Like, here, look at how handsome he is. I read somewhere that he went with a rolled-up canvas portrait of himself that he was going to leave, like an old T-shirt. I think he carried one of those around all the time anyway. More on him later. (laughs) Um, So, in the end, the Scottish nobles started to think about this a little, and they're like, you know, a malleable young ruler that has notoriously a great tolerance for different religions, history here, and a viable claim to the neighboring kingdom. This is an asset we really shouldn't discard lightly. And they decided they were going to go ahead and invite her back to the kingdom. Please, come home. There was still a crazy situation in Scotland, Catholic versus Protestant, happening the same time all over Europe, including France. But they invited her back, and it wasn't a trick. It did seem, on paper, like a good idea. Well, and although personally Mary was very Catholic, very, 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 very Catholic, in matters of public policy, she was just practical. That really seems a lot like Elizabeth, actually. Uh, yes, I it's completely agree. It's like, I'm not going to look into your heart. It's your actions. Don't mess with me. Right. <laughs> right. Ex- yeah, exactly. I totally agree. It, it could work if it was working in England. Why couldn't it work in Scotland? Well, most of Mary's advisors actually were Protestant, including that older half-brother, Lord Moray, again, who was her chief counselor. 
there was a great fear, again, just like before, that Elizabeth was going to intercept these boats on the way back. Yeah, and Mary had asked for protection from her, but Elizabeth's like, hello, you never signed the Treaty of Edinburgh. You need to say that you're going to back this so that we're cool. And Mary was dragging her heels on it, so Elizabeth didn't give her any protection going back to Scotland. And then Mary's like, you know what? I don't even need you. How about that? And she took off anyway. I know. I got here when I was a child just fine. You know, she wasn't even mean. She just hoped for it but was not nervous about going without it. She really did. She kept checking. Has the thing come? Has the paper come from Elizabeth? And at the last minute when didn't, she's like, well, all right. Well, I gave her a lot of chances to. Yeah. In my head at this point, I'm thinking of Elizabeth as working a whole lot more political than Mary. Mary thinks that she's got this great relationship with Elizabeth. Yeah. And Elizabeth's going, uh, no. Well, because who's not been in the intrigue house her whole life? That would be Mary, who's pretty much taking people at face value. Mm-hmm. Oh, they want me to come back. Well, they seem nice. I think I'll go back. Yeah. So outraged Catholics, irritated at the fact that their Catholic queen came back and didn't lay down the hammer, tried an open rebellion, which Mary was actually instrumental in squashing. In fact, um, I read this as tactics, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I can't fight you guys, so I'm going to friend you. And incidentally... Queen Elizabeth II, how about it? One source I read gave her reason for all this acceptance of Protestantism as looking to her future as a possible heir presumptive in England. Because if you wanted to pacify old France, this is not the way that you need to be going, Protestant. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, it does make sense because, you know, you have a clear old alliance with France that would point you one direction, and Mary literally did not spare one second to go that direction. No. I think at the beginning she did a really good job of balancing things. I think so, too. And even Queen Elizabeth responded to this as best she could. Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth did dissemble her, but she said, gosh, what was the language? Like, I know of no one with a better claim to be my heir than Mary. Close as she could get. She didn't say, and therefore. Yeah. No. No. But she basically said, if only some things were a little different. This is the same person that promised all these guys she was going to marry them for 40 years, too. So yeah. <laughs> who knows what we can trust out of Queen Elizabeth's mouth. Mary was always so eager for a personal meeting with Queen Elizabeth, but it just never happened. There's letters going back and forth, and, you know, they they talked about each other in very good girlfriendy terms. I know. It just seems like had they had modern communication, a lot of this kind of thing might have been eliminated. If they could just, what did you say? Oh, okay, because I heard this. No, that's not what I said. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So any schemes for them actually meeting were put on nearly indefinite hold when civil war broke out in France. You got out just in time, girl. And Queen Elizabeth and the Guises ended up on opposite sides. So Mary, unlike Elizabeth, did not wish to rule alone at all. At this time, Mary was seen as the reasonable, industrious, virtuous queen who took advice well and was a proper queen, in fact. And Elizabeth was seen as oppositional and irritating and unwomanly and flighty, what with her flirtation and who knows what all with her friend boy, Lord Robert Dudley. So Queen Mary Europe saw as the reasonable one. We should all know that. I yeah. mean, she liked to dance. She liked to wear fancy clothes. But she was seen as the reasonable one of the two. And I think Scotland liked her to dance and liked her to wear fancy clothes. Well, she yeah. kind of classed up the joint, you know. No offense, Scotland. But same thing that her mom had done, you know, when she came. Yeah. Put, Mary some, put some velvet on it. It'll look beautiful. Is that like put a bird on it? <laughs> put some velvet put on some it? Put some velvet on it. 
So Mary was making admirers and friends all over Europe, even with Queen Elizabeth's staff. Anyone that met her kind of fell a little bit in like with her. Yeah, she was very personable. She just and the common one of those people that people liked. Yeah, and the common people couldn't freaking get enough. They were relieved. Number one, they were going to be in trouble about the new religion, so that was good. But they admired their young and beautiful queen. Like this, this now is what we're talking about. I like to see a little fancy queen. Yeah, the the common people were all about it. That's what queens are supposed to look like and act like. And B. Well, so um, so she really wanted a husband. She really, really did. And there were complications. We had to ask her permission from all over the dang place. And advice from all over the dang place. And cousin Queen Elizabeth I flat out said if she married any of these royal men or got a dispensation to marry her much younger old brother-in-law back in France, she, Elizabeth, would be very upset. But I have a suggestion, says Elizabeth. I know. Okay, here's a good deal. What about a British nobleman? Oh, I don't know. Hmm, who could it be? Let me, let me just think. This is just off the top of my head now. What about, what about Robert? Lord Dudley? Okay. <laughs> At first, Mary was super insulted. He's not even royal. As if, like, Cher dating a skater. <laughs> Do you know what movie that is? Clueless. As if. This boyfriend? This guy? And then... Elizabeth added the little sweetener, but I'll name you the heir. Oh. oh. Now, see, there's the sweetener we could get behind. He looks a little nicer now. Now we talk. So Robert Dudley, however, was super insulted for real. He actually loved Elizabeth I. And this seems really callous. It seemed callous to him. Also, did she think, Elizabeth, that she was going to control him from afar? Y- yes. <laughs> That's exactly... You got that right, Lord Dudley. Yeah. Um, So Elizabeth, or Robert Dudley himself as a distraction from himself as bridegroom, sent another Lord D up to Scotland. And it was another English noble by the name of Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. He was one of the guys that came out in the first round. Was this a trap of some kind? I just don't know. Lord Darnley, whose grandma, incidentally, was also Margaret Tudor. So, you know. Family trees don't fork far in this family. No. <laughs> Face of a Greek god. Uh, pretty, not hearty. Like, Scotsman yeah. kind of thought he was a little mm, feminine. Mm-hmm. For their taste, he was awfully beautiful. Spoiled the freak rotten by his parents. Um, worse than Harry Potter's Dudley Dursley ever was. But to Mary, I mean, he, this was a guy that had, it was the guy, kind of the guy that Elizabeth said she should marry someone that was tied to England. He was tall. Mary's like almost six foot. They um they have his thigh bone to measure. That's convenient. And they think he might have been as tall as six foot three. So for a woman who's almost six feet tall in this day and in this age when you're towering right over most men, to have this Greek godlike attractive six foot three man with it has to be said magnetismo your defense has got to crumble a little bit you've never seen the like of this happen sure and he's he's catholic he's you know pro-english catholic he's in line for the english throne he's the blood's there okay yeah in this time and in this place two kind of weak claims to the throne married together made a better claim to the throne i don't understand the math but if you had a shaky claim and married somebody else with an equally shaky claim, suddenly you guys both got bumped up. Gave you a little more stability. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So anyway, that was kind of seen as like, hmm. Now, it must be said he irritated 
almost everyone but Mary. He was vain, and he was condescending, and he was pompous. Like, if he wasn't who he was, he would have been killed in a bar fight a long time ago. <laughs> in fact, he punched someone once for bringing him bad news. He's that kind of guy. Hmm. Yeah. He got sick, and our Queen Mary, Lorraine McFly, herself into an unwise marriage. <gasps> I love that. Good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it? Bird watching? That's my favorite line for that whole thing. Calvin. Aaron Dwarf says Calvin Klein. <laughs> she asked around. Spain said, okay, you know, he's Catholic. We're, we're down. Her old brother-in-law, Charles of France, said, okay, are we asking everyone? But Elizabeth said, no way. I demand that you come back home, Lord Darnley. You're my subject. You're not supposed to marry without my permission. Like, what the heck? Elizabeth is crazy hey. sauce. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, Mary didn't know where she was coming from. You know, she was all over the place. This is like exactly the kind of guy that Mary said she, that Elizabeth said Mary should get. So what's the problem? Exactly. They had to get what's called a papal dispensation because they were considered too close to Mary without asking the Pope because their grandmother was the same person. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. But the fact is, they got married before the papal dispensation arrived. So technically, on a technicality, although no one pressed it, that's an invalid marriage. According to the standards of the time. Right. Well, she, and she, without getting the approval, she, like, knocked him up. She knighted him. Knocked him up. I don't she mean knocked that. him up. I don't mean that. It was a miracle. Like, <laughs> she, like, raised him in the ranks, you know. She knighted him and made him a baron and then an earl. So she, he could be on a level that she would marry as a queen. Well, she married this 19-year-old Henry Darnley after making him uh, king of this, our kingdom. And Mary retired to the bedchamber with great happiness, and the nobles, silent, their worst dreams come true, King, I'm going to say it, and I might bloop it out, King Old Nincompoop was now the boss of them. <laughs> so they're super she, happy about that. She did wear black to this wedding, though. <laughs> <laughs> so while a lot of the nobles were not exactly um, very excited about this, The commoners loved the heck out of this picture. This is a king and a queen from central casting. In fact, the king often wore gold armor. Now, anyone who's touched actual real gold knows how soft that is. Gold armor is going to not do. I could probably stab a butter knife through gold armor. And I'm not even that strong. So gold armor. You don't need to be in a jousting accident to get injured. No. So that's, that's, I mean, we're all about facade. But it turns out to be, as my husband calls it, facade. It's full of feces. <laughs> Fesade is often what's behind a facade. Yes. New word of the day. Excellent. Use it in a sentence. This great week. word. So um, along comes Moray. Remember him? He's the Protestant half-brother who's kind of the boss of everyone and invited her to come back and everything. This Catholic marriage, man, this is not what we really expected when you came back here. And then this guy? Yeah, I gotta lose power. I'm losing power by having this man in there. No, not exactly. And so now becomes this comedy of Three Stooges proportions that the history books call the Chase About Raid, in which Moray and the forces of Queen Mary basically ran in circles around not ever getting close enough to actually fight, but just chasing each other in a circle all over the country. Does that seem like a pointless endeavor to you? Like, you better, I oughta, wait till I catch you. I mean, are you, you're running, right? Okay, wait till I catch you. I'm gonna get you. Were they just here? They were. Dang, I 
missed him. Let's have a snack and then we'll go back on the road. It's more like kind of silly. Mary started to realize all this family feud stuff was just not going to go away. And so she started to rely on people with no skin in the game. Europeans of assorted nationalities. Um, nobles got their noses at a joint, but mm. really, what are you supposed to do? Moray had to flee to England for a while. And good old King Henry, darnly, now that he had the honor and the responsibility for signing things with his wife, liked to just enjoy his position by going out hunting and hawking. He's bored of all this reading things. Just make a stamp of my signature. Just make a stamp. I don't want to, I'm going to mess with this. He didn't do the work to get the power. He's discovered in a soda shop and became a star. <laughs> he didn't do any of the ground work no, before. No, not at all. And he didn't do it when he was there. I mean, he wasn't doing the job. Mm-hmm. It would have been one thing if he got into the job and started being kingly. But all he did was being pompous. So this stamp, this stamp made of King Henry's signature was given to one of these advisors from Europe that Mary had named Rizzio. The ugliest man anyone had ever seen is how he's known, unfortunately. <laughs> he started out as a court musician um, and ended up being kind of her private secretary. And when Mary became pregnant, the rumor was that this man was the father of her child. That is nonsense. This woman is about duty. She's not about this kind of situation, even, I don't think. Even her husband is suggesting that it's not his. You know, he wasn't... He was like, well, maybe not. Well, and They're he, awfully close. And he is easily led. He is an easily led man. You know, people that are that vain, they Here. have a lever that has just got a red paint on it. And all you people have to do is push it. He is so weak and so controllable. Uh, he was goaded into having him and some dudes get this. Get how crazy this is. Darnley and friends murdered Rizzio with knives, stabbed him 56 times, right in front of the pregnant Mary when she was having dinner. Now, at the time, they weren't, husband and wife were not getting along very well at all, you know. So this is a good way to to what? Exert his personality. I mean, she was doing things like, you know, taking his name off the coins and calling him the queen's husband, you know. So this is his retaliation, which is just violent and unnecessary and you know he sits back at the table while his people come in and stab this guy right there but i'm wondering if the people that urged him to do it wanted mary to miscarry the heir Mm. yeah that's what i'm guessing that's their motivation poor rizio paid the price for everybody's intriguing a couple of days later (laughs) king henry darnley came to his senses or realized he'd been outwitted, which took two days. (laughs) (laughs) And Marie and Henry had to escape and um, stay away for a while while their allies got the situation under control, including Marais, who's back. Who can keep track of who's on whose side? Yeah, he's crossing over from England quite a bit. But remember, she is like six months pregnant at the time. You know, this is getting kind of close here. So baby Prince James was born in June 1566 back at home in Edinburgh. Woo! An heir. And she was 23 at the time. And based on his appearance, he was not Rizzio's child. No. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Luckily. They named his godmother Elizabeth I. She was his godmother. It may have done good things later, but as of now, didn't do a whole lot. Not so much. But Darnley was such a thorn 
in pretty much everybody's side by now, including Mary's, that Mary and her council had a meeting, like one of those meetings in a corporation where you, quote, forget to invite somebody. Yeah. They had a meeting about the Darnley problem. The word divorce was put out. But the Protestant lords are like, you know, what? Uh, I'm just going to handle this. How about that? Now, was Mary sitting there with her hands over her ears going, la, 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 yeah. la? Mm, or did she know? Well, she didn't actually set the plot to get rid of him in motion herself. Oh, no, no. No, but she did make the people that um, could take care of it in a position that they could take care of it while her back was turned. Well, that's I'm just going to turn around and stand over there, and you guys do whatever you guys are inclined to do. You know, you guys who've just been um, betrayed by Darnley. Take care of it in a manly way. So Darnley knew something was up and fled to his papa's estate. He got sick. Some say poison. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be. And Mary urged him to come back to Edinburgh to recover in a house owned by the brother of a council member, which should be a red flag to you, Darnley, but lured back by a reconciliation with his lovely wife, who's very attentive and keeps visiting him at Kirkofield Abbey. So she visited him often, reassuring him, and when you get better, we'll work on this relationship, and this and that. And Mary openly and obviously, with a torchlight procession, went to the wedding celebration of one of her court. Bastion, I don't know how to say it, is it Pagas? You're asking me. If you can ever pronounce it, I'm certainly not going to be able to. Let's call him Bastion. Bastion. So Bastion it was his name. So Bastion. Uh, not Bash. Rain watchers. <laughs> so I've never seen it, so I know. we're going to have to yeah. depend on Susan for yeah. that. We'll talk about rain later. <laughs> I keep promising. We will. We will. So basically, this guy was the equivalent of her master of the rebels. Anytime there was a dance or a party, he was kind of like the event planner. <laughs> he was a big guy in her entourage. Not only did Mary openly, obviously, and with probably excess steps taken, excess torches, much light upon one's visage. It is me, the queen, walking to this other place right now. Uh, she stayed and watched the bride and groom get put to bed. Like you do. Yeah. It was a thing. More common then. Yeah. When suddenly Kirk of the Field blew up. <laughs> blew up. And I was like, how did it blow up? Okay, evidently they poured barrels full of gunpowder in there and set it on fire. That'll do it. Now, here's the bad thing. They didn't position the people quite carefully because instead of being burnt up in the explosion, Darnley and his servant were found dead in the garden, having maybe been blown out the window. And he was smothered, and he had a broken rib, which was probably not suicide, huh? Mm-mm. Yeah. I, I, I had read in one thing that he suspected something was happening and tried to get away rather than being blown out the window and surviving that and then getting killed. No, I mean, I think that he was killed inside the castle. Oh. And then they were they were going to blow it up to cover the evidence. And instead the evidence... Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, no, yeah. it was there. No, That's just you weren't there. Theory. Yeah. But assorted finger pointing, everyone could be a suspect. Mm-hmm. Moray, Mary was certainly looked at, not for doing it. Her alibi was very clear. Yeah. <laughs> but for arranging it, or at least getting on board, even Bastion was under suspicion, even though he had a pretty good alibi, too, as he was put to bed in public at the time of the explosion. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, in a letter, told her, this looked very bad. You're peeking through your fingers while these men do this horrible thing. This from a woman whose papa openly chopped your mom's head off. <laughs> Speaking of looking bad. Yeah. But whatever. Well, at least he took, you know, he took the credit for it. 
I guess. He wasn't. Yeah, credit. You know, you do the crime. You don't have to do the time because you're king. The end. (laughs) It's a very short story. (laughs) Um, So yeah, these swirling, swirling accusations eventually settled on one man, James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell. Remember him? He was one of the suitors that was pulled out back when Francis died. He was presented to Mary as a possible husband. He had been in court with her back in France working for the king. Uh, He'd been a supporter of her mother during the Regency period. And then really one of her go-to guys when she had come over from France. Uh, Mary had once ridden like the wind for four hours to see him once when he'd been wounded in a battle. Although, at the time, this was seen as more statecraft than, what, lovecraft? Lovecraft. (laughs) (laughs) But this whole thing was spun later as the beginnings of an affair. It's a retrofitted rumor. At the time, she was with soldiers. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was more like, I've got to get this information before he dies, kind of thing. So Darnley's dad, naturally enough, wanted Bothwell punished. But it was kind of a joke trial, honestly. No real time for the prosecution side to gather evidence. The castle was filled with her supporters and all the Hepburns. (laughs) Darnley's family was pretty much blocked, physically blocked. Oh, yeah, the trial's going on over here, but you can't get into the castle because, I'm sorry, we've reached capacity. Well, Anne Bothwell had been at the meeting discussing how his trial was going to go. To me, it's like, really? Why even bother having this thing? But obviously, um, no time to gather evidence. He was found innocent. There you go. Trial. Done. See? It's what you guys wanted. And then, Bothwell had all these lords meet and sign what's called the Ainsley Tavern Bond. They signed off, okay, that acquittal was genuine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whatevs. It's okay for, say, yourself or someone like, very like you to marry our queen. And we're going to go ahead and fight. Should such a random, nondescript, nonspecific marriage happen, we will fight to defend it. Yeah. It doesn't matter that Bothwell's already married. Mm. Yeah. He's proposed several times, and she did turn him down. But one day, she was visiting young baby James, um, and Bothwell, essentially, he kidnapped her. Either kidnapped Mary or, quote, kidnapped her. Did she know? Did she not know? And then, how do we put this delicately? He had his way with her, for real or for a cover story. The consensus among the books I read is that she did know about the abduction. That was going to happen. That was going to be her excuse. But she did not know about the ravishment that was going to happen. Bothwell was known to say that even if she changes her mind and decides not to marry me, I'm going to make it impossible for her to turn me down. Right. Yeah, his personality is really, his character is really starting to show. Right. I mean, he was never a really good guy, but she trusted him. And then um, she's starting to realize that he's kind of an abuser, but it was too late. Incidentally, that was the last time she would ever see her son. He's 10 months old at the time. I know. So you see some paintings of herself plus grown up er James never that was like a that's photoshopped <laughs> <That's right. laughs> because they just um you know aged up 
But yeah, she never was near an adult or adolescent James. Right. This is the last time she saw him. He's just still an infant. Um, while she was being held captive, he quickly divorced his wife in agreeing that he cheated on her with her maid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cheated on you. Let's and divorce. the wife was willing. She knew which way the wind was blowing. And I think she'd married him for political reasons in the first place. It's not like true love. No, no. All... And they hadn't been married for very long, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, and when she got sick earlier and he kind of like hoped she would die, I'm like, you know what? Well, that would have been more convenient. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fine. You're yeah. You're going to be sad that I'm going to be dead. You can just be free. Yeah, she was better off without him. Via Condios. Yeah. So 12 days after kidnapping Mary, and with her support, she raised him high enough to marry her. And they did. The day after their marriage, in fact, Mary asked for a knife to kill herself. <laughs> Darnley had only been dead for three months. She knew this is just, there's a, this is a no-win situation for her. This is bad on top of bad on top of bad. The honeymoon, of course, was over before it really even started. Um, he was just such a classic emotional abuser. He was jealous. He cut her down in front of others. He kept her away from her advisors unless he was present. Um, she, he kept every one of her movements watched by one of his guards. You know, she never made a move without him knowing about it. People remarked on her appearance like she had been a joyful, happy person only a little bit before, and now she had hollow eyes and pale skin and was never herself again. Basically, this marriage caused widespread WTH from all over the place, all over the crowned heads of Europe, most of the noblemen in her own country, and the common people who, remember, only knew their king is a guy that Central Casting puts in because he looks kingy. <laughs> she just married... Her husband's murderer? And to a man whose wife is still living? So to Catholics, he's still got a wife, remember? Right. Mary and Bothwell tried to face the nobles to set out to fight them to take power uh, at a place called Carberry Hill. But the fact is, their soldiers kind of faded out. Even Yeah, yeah she, had, she they went there with an army. But as the day progressed, the army just kind of disappeared. They had to go home to supper, and it's getting cold. I have to wash my hair. <laughs> yeah, I have, we've done everything we can here. Let's go home. Nothing's going to happen. So the two of them were essentially left without without any protection. And they were facing some nobles all fired up with their banner that showed a dead Darnley with his baby son. And it said, avenge me. Avenge me. The... Irony, of course, is that some of them were involved in his death, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. you got to have compartments. Yeah, yeah, because if anyone's going to usurp the queen's power, it wasn't going to be this punk Bothwell. It was going to be me. Me. I'm a noble. <laughs> so Bothwell was actually given safe passage to flee. Um, eventually, he ended up in an insane asylum, or what passed for one, in the Netherlands or Denmark. Uh, anyway, he died completely imprisoned and in his own head. Hmm. And they imprisoned Mary in Loch Castle on an island in the middle of a lake. This is a good place to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to see the end game. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. 
But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message on iTunes. Oh, here we are back with unhappy Mary, who's just been imprisoned at Loch Laven Castle. She's not in a good place. No, by her own people. The her nobility has put her in this dank dank place. She does have one strange and surprising ally in Queen Elizabeth who is writing letters and saying that if Mary could get treated like this by her people, it might give others the idea across the land that they could treat their queen like that. But Mary is taking it as, oh, my cousin is just being so loving and compassionate instead of being, my cousin is trying for self-preservation. Whatever works, really. Yeah. Well, Mary had a miscarriage. She miscarried twins. And then was forced, under threat of violence by her own nobles, by the way, forced to abdicate um, in favor of her one-year-old son, who is now, by virtue of his ascension to the kingship, the seventh ruler in Scotland who'd come to the crown as a minor. Lord Moray, again, was appointed his governor. So Lord Moray is in charge in Scotland. Yeah, well, and it was power that he always thought that he was entitled to anyways. About a year later, a year in which she had done a lot of embroidery, <laughs> I will tell you. The next 19 years, lots and lots of embroidery. She was smuggled out during a May Day celebration by the relatives of the castle owner. One of the relatives of the castle owner had actually purloined the keys to the gate and broke her out and... She was helped to escape, and with about 6,000 supporters, tried to battle Moray's men to get her crown back. And after a 45-minute battle, she was really forced to flee over to England, where she was just sure that Elizabeth, another anointed queen, Cousin Elizabeth, would be absolutely furious at her treatment and come lay down the smack. <laughs> her supporters are thinking, they're saying, France, go to France. We've been long-time friends with France. France will protect you. And she's going, oh, no, my cousin Elizabeth, right over here, so close. She'll take care of me. Oh, yes. And Elizabeth thought, maybe. Let me look into all this. So Mary was held slash hosted. I know. Elizabeth gave her new lodging in yet another castle prison. Yeah. Uh, first one castle, then moved further in, away from the border, while the investigation began. She had 50-plus servants and attendants. She could go hunting. She could wander around outside. The castle was redone to a higher standard, and her rank was so high, they borrowed tapestries from all over the place. The food was superior. I mean, this jail was conscious of the rank of its inhabitant. To Elizabeth's credit, you know, she was continuing to say, well, this is not how you treat a queen. But if you were to imprison a queen, this is how she should be treated. And she's showing it. But really, she's saying, I'm going to hold you on the grounds that you were an accomplice to Darnley's murder. And, of course, her half-brother James, who's back in Scotland and has, you know, the power of a regent. This is Moray. Moray. Right. Yeah. And all my notes, I'm like, half-bro James. There's too many James. I know. There's too many James. That's true. Um, But he was super anxious to throw Mary under the bus. Yep, she sure did it, he said. Her jailers allowed her to hang out with some local English Catholic nobles, which, given Mary's past, you know, claim to the English throne and everything did not look good. 
So she was moved again, this time further in to Totbury Castle, um, under the poor old watchful eye of Lord Shrewsbury, who for over 14 years had the expensive and stressful chore of keeping this high-profile and volatile woman prisoner and keeping her away from those who would use her or her name to plot against Queen Elizabeth. You know, she's not dressed in rags. I kept thinking about um, Joan of Arc, you know, how she was in prison. That's not even close to what's going on for Mary. It's, you know, it's prison, but it's, you know, camp cupcake. It's prison. Prison. (laughs) (laughs) So the investigation continued. This evidence was produced. They're called the casket letters, incriminating letters implicating Mary in the plot to kill Darnley. So real... Fabricated, there's the rub. No one knows. Even now, the originals have been destroyed, probably by her son later. Mm-hmm. How gentlemanly of you. That is his father. You think about how weird that is. Yeah. Yeah. The fact is, though, that Mary's presence in England was dangerous to Elizabeth. Even during the investigation, the Duke of Norfolk, the highest-ranking nobleman in England, was considering marrying Mary. She still had that charm. Well, to further his own yeah, exactly. Power. She, that's true. It was like a pen pal proposal. He's like, oh, well, I could get up really far if I marry her. Well, this is the same family who sent Anne Boleyn to seduce the king. So pretty ruthless dude. Yeah. Pretty ruthless family. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth put old Duke of Norfolk in the tower for it, too. There was a rebellion in the north of England. Catholic lords were uprising. and You see how her very presence is messing things up? Queen Elizabeth I put spies in Mary's extensive servant network. Um, there was a plot called the Ridolfi Plot. Spain was going to send troops over to topple Queen Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. But who was the inside man? The Duke of Norfolk. Him, at least, she can deal with. Yeah, exactly. That will be chop. But Mary, even though Parliament drew up a paper basically removing Mary from the line of succession forever, Queen Elizabeth was still very sensitive to that second person problem. She'd had it herself. When her sister was on the throne, Elizabeth was what they call the second person. Plots in one's name that you have nothing to do with can come back to get you. Hadn't she been a figure in those very kinds of things herself? So where was the proof that Mary herself was after the throne? There were several other plots involving the Pope. Come on now. And Philip II of Spain, and one called the Throckmorton plot, which got her moved to stricter custody with different handlers. But again, the proof, the proof. Elizabeth wanted incontrovertible proof. And she was willing to wait for it. I mean, this was like a 15-year imprisonment on Mary's part and with Mary having you know communications with people but she never actually said let's get rid of Elizabeth in print at this point when she was moved to the castle with different handlers she was forbidden from corresponding with the outside world at all too much temptation so the proof was going to be a little harder to find but In 1586, after 18 years of being kept a prisoner in England, Elizabeth finally got her proof. You see, Parliament had passed what they call an Act of Association, which means Mary could be executed if she would benefit from a plot against Queen Elizabeth, even if initiated by others, even if she had nothing to do with it. How convenient. I just thought, convenient. Yeah, That's the same thing. Yep. So Elizabeth's spymaster had infiltrated Mary's household to the point that they kind of created a system which lured her into making unwise moves. Let's just put it this way. The system was this kind of waterproof device that fit in the beer barrel corks. 
mm-hmm. uh, by which she could send messages in and out. And um, she got so comfortable with that that she let her guard down, unfortunately. They intercepted a coded message from Mary to the conspirators in what was later called the Babington Plot, where she herself authorized her people to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I in a beer barrel cork. <laughs> It's all arranged by Walsingham. That's a Queen Elizabeth's spy master. It was a trap. I mean, it was totally a trap. It was, it was a trap. she just, you know, she was desperate, A. Eh? She'd been doing this for, you know, almost half of her life. Mary's got no skills to get through this. She's not an intriguer. No, and she, it's, it was fairly simple to get her to fall into one of their traps. Well, the conspirators were all executed. Mary herself was sent to Fotheringay Castle for her trial, or should I say, quote, trial. She was not allowed to look at the evidence against her. She was not allowed to have counsel. She was not allowed to call witnesses. Mary was convicted of treason, to which she justifiably objected. I've never been an English subject. How could I have committed treason? Forty-five of the judges voted guilty, and one (laughs) brave lord voted not guilty. I don't know how to say his name. Lord Zeus, <laughs> Which would come about Zeus in my mind. I had never I heard know. of this guy before. Z-O-U-C-H-E. Voted Zoosh. not guilty. Did Maybe he, he wanted to try and marry her. Oh, well. <laughs> join the line. Put your quarter yeah. up, yo. Yo, yo, yo. Elizabeth's... <laughs> Why are you laughing? Just laughing because you're like, yo, yo, yo. Yo. <laughs> Elizabeth signed Mary's death warrant. Still torn, still torn. You know, executing an anointed queen went against her personal grain because it went against her personal self if people thought it was cool to execute an anointed queen. Hmm. Yeah. Again, she's pretty consistent in her motivation. Well, it took over three months for her to sign it at all. She even asked Mary's jailer on the sly, "Can, can something be done, like, to hasten? Like, can we just handle this on the DL so she wouldn't have to do it. But alas, you know, she hired an honorable man. No. So she had to sign it. Now, she gave it to a man for safekeeping, or so she said. She just get okay, it's done. This is my insurance. Here it is. Hold on to this. Till I tell you to do something with it. That's her story afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Might I say we're dealing with Elizabeth, master manipulator. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the dudes... Her dudes jumped on this at once. They didn't even tell Elizabeth that things were in motion, or they said they didn't tell Elizabeth that things were in motion. We just don't know. On Mary's side, though, by this point, she's considering herself, um, she knows what's going to happen to her eventually. You know, it's pretty obvious. But she's considering herself a martyr for the Catholic faith. So that's giving her some sense of peace that her death isn't going to be in vain. So, yeah, seriously, Elizabeth (laughs) signed this thing February 1st. By February 7th, a scaffold had been built inside the Great Hall of the castle Mm -hmm. with a velvet cushion for her to kneel on. That's very thoughtful. So um, she's denied talking to her chaplain. So the night before she knows she's going to be executed, she um, writes him her confession, and she stays up very late, dividing any possessions that she has left. On the day of her execution, she's dressed um, in appearance in a, in a dark garb with a long veil and a headdress. But underneath it, which she takes off, when she gets on the scaffold, is a red dress, which is signifying the blood that she's about to spill for her faith. She made a tiny little joke. She said, I'd never had such grooms, because the executioner, Bull was his name, helped her to take off her outer garments. She's like, I'd never undressed before such a company, and I've never had such grooms. I'm like, oh, my God. 
that's a nice little joke. And she went, you know, she didn't fight. She went willingly and she said, into your, unto your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. So having been pre-forgiven by Mary, the executioner, Bull, I will never understand that tradition, by the way. Wouldn't you be more inclined to curse him or whatever? I yeah. It's not his fault. I don't know. Whatever. But anyway, having been pre-forgiven, which ended up being a mistake, he messed up a whole lot. Um, if you're easily disturbed, I would say the words, la, 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 to yourself for about 17 seconds, starting right now. His first axe strike missed her neck entirely and hit her in the back of the head. His second didn't get all the way through the neck at all, and he had to, like, saw through the rest of her neck. And then he held the head up by the hair and said, God save the queen, and the wig he was actually holding let go, and Mary's head fell and rolled on the ground. That didn't go very well at all. The thing is, the counselors, the nobles who had arranged this execution, had everything burnt, even the block, her clothes, anything splattered with her blood. Onlookers, you got splattered with blood? Hand it over. We're putting that in the fire. No mistake. There was a little dog hiding in her dress who had refused to leave her. He ended up being covered in blood. Um, They had to wash the dog like nine times. There were to be no relics. The floor was scrubbed immediately. The rags used to scrub the floor burnt. So these things found in museums or on Pinterest, for example, that say, you know, this was carried by Mary. I mean, they burnt a rosary. They're not playing. Yeah. You would think the rosary might be saved? No. I know for a fact they burned at least one. I don't know if there was one miraculously saved. Doubtful provenance is the words used (laughs) for most things that said they were carried by Mary, Queen of Scots. No relics were to be had. In fact, the body was put in a 900-pound, 900-pound lead coffin. Nobody was to be taking this on the sly and taking it any place and setting up a shrine. 900 pounds of lead. Queen Elizabeth found out uh, she'd been left out of the loop and actually imprisoned the guy she'd handed the signed death warrant to for almost two years, which was good PR. It sucked for him. Yeah. So was that real or was that fake? It was a completed death warrant with her signature on it. That was not in dispute. But was he to execute it or not? In fact, those nobles, or Elizabeth, didn't allow any news out of Fotheringay Castle for almost a month. Everyone was kind of sealed up like an Agatha Christie mystery. <laughs> We're going to all stay here till we nail this down. They didn't want the news to get out. I think Elizabeth was most afraid of her son, James, over in Scotland. Who by now, at this point, is older. I mean, he's no longer the infant king. He is the king. James did cut off communication. There were nobles agitating on her behalf. Uh, Elizabeth sent an ambassador to apologize. And you know what? James sees the big picture. He hasn't really seen his mother (laughs) ever. He remember ever. (laughs) He sees the crown in his future if he plays his cards right, honestly. Um, Mary was buried in a Protestant ceremony at Peterborough Cathedral in 1587, and she was 44 years old. And in 1603, when Queen Elizabeth I finally did die, Mary's son, who, you know, she'd last seen as a 10-month-old baby, became James I of England and 6th of Scotland. This is the King James of the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. This is also the focus of Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot, which might be more familiar to our listeners in Great Britain. But as we're recording this in November... It's just been Guy Fox Day. How about this? He's the James in Jamestown, Virginia, the first permanent English settlement in the Americas. So we've already got some legacy there. It takes him a while, but in 1612, he had his mother's body moved and buried as a queen should have been in Westminster Abbey. 
So she, who wanted the English crown all along, is buried among English royalty. I think that's kind of fitting. It is. Yeah. And her tomb, shortly after it was built, was rumored to be the place to pray if you needed a miracle. It was it was the shrine that Queen Elizabeth had never wanted it to be. It became the shrine. In the end here, I guess just to close out her life, it seems like my sources are almost evenly divided between Mary, Queen of Scots, was an unlucky pawn of circumstances beyond her control, and Mary, Queen of Scots, was a calculating player of high-stakes games who didn't have the skill to pull them off. I could come down on either side. Yeah, me too. I, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so as to media, um, if you were just going to go to the library and get one book just to see a little bit more about the life of Mary Queen of Scots, you're not ready to become completely obsessed. Um, we actually both agree on this one. It's Mary Queen of Scots. It's by Susan Watkins with photographs by uh, Mark Fine. And it's full of not only her story, but there's, it's, there's pictures. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's a coffee table. Oh, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little heavy. Here's... There it is. <laughs> and I have um, Antonia Fraser, Mary Queen of Scots. Um, I might recommend that one, too. It was easy to get through, and it was full of facts and footnotes and um, appendixes where you can read some of the casket letters that were given as evidence in her trial, her, quote, trial, <laughs> yeah. I should say. If you want to read an easier one without being bled down the footnote and appendix aisle, I would recommend The Memoirs of Mary Queen of Scots by Caroli Erickson. It was a fast read, uh, historical fiction, but there's a lot of fact in there. You know, Philippa Gregory has a historical fiction, too. It's called The Other Queen. Mm-hmm. You know, just like any Philip and Gregory book, we talk about this with all the Tudors podcasts, don't get too hung up. It's historical fiction, and it's a way in. It's a way in to Mary Queen of Scots in which you can get a feel for the lady and then go read the biographies, like Tudors versus Stuarts, The Fatal Inheritance of Mary Queen of Scots by Linda Porter. So you can start with the biography, if that's your like, or you can start with the historical fiction. You're all going to get to the same place. Exactly. Um, The one that I liked was The True Life of Mary Stewart, Queen of Scots, by John Guy, or Guy. I don't know. Um, As for kid books, um, you wouldn't want to be Mary Queen of Scots, a ruler who really lost her head, written by Fiona MacDonald and illustrated by David Antram. It's a kid book, but it's got a lot of details in it, and we would be remiss because when we did the tutors before, we didn't talk about this book. Um, The Tudor Tutor, Your Cheeky Guide to the Dynasty, the second edition is out, and it is illustrated by our friend Lisa Graves. So there's some wonderful um, illustrations in it, and it's, it's an easy read. Okay, so there are four separate mentions of Mary Queen of Scots in Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, I, I can't believe you're doing the Doctor Who references. I'm sorry. That's well, fine. That's good. Go for well, it. Go for I, it. I'm, hey, I, I can throw in Harry Potter's now. I dare you. Fairly. I don't have any for this, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, I could. I'm not fluent, but, you know, I can find the bathroom in Harry Potter land. <laughs> You know, like you you go to a foreign country and you don't really speak the language, but you can find the bathroom and order a beer. That's about. I could order a butter beer. Oh! oh! She pulls one out. Get this. Get this. There is a movie from 1895. Eight. I said it. 1895. <laughs> that actually has some pretty advanced special effects for the time to the point where if I was an 1895 movie watcher, I might have peed. I mean, now you'd be like, yeah, whatever. It's just a <laughs> wax head. But at the time, I can see people freaking out. Um, it's just called The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots, and I want to say it's no longer than 20 seconds. And literally, it's a lady 
kneeling down, and the executioner raises his axe, and a head pops off, and it's relatively seamless. Now, I think you're fourth or fifth grader. Yeah. But at the time, I just, I, I watched it, and I'm like, oh my god. Everyone just fainted. In the yeah, audience. I know. It's like the 1895, The Hills Have Eyes, or, you know, whatever, whatever horror movie scared you for life. Okay. Disney. This is also on YouTube. The truth behind Mary Mary Quite Contrary. The entire thing is sort of really not very accurate, historically speaking. Just so you know. So listen to this whole thing first and then go over there. It's a good watch. There's some facts they didn't quite nail down, and that's okay. And as a matter of fact, Mary Mary Quite Contrary may well be this Mary, and it may be Mary Tudor. The jury's out. But that's pretty cool. And then there's this meta referential movie by Agatha Christie called The Mirror Cracked, in which it's two high-placed movie stars playing Mary Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth in a production, and then crime ensues, and it kind of mixes with history and the actual story that's currently going. So, um, other movies, there's the 1971 Vanessa Redgrave, Mary Queen of Scots with Glenda Jackson, again, being Queen Elizabeth, which is, it's, I like it. I like this version. It's a little dated as far as uh, production values, but... It, it was nominated for a lot of Oscars. Mm-hmm. I take that as validation that it's probably a pretty good yeah. movie. There's a 2013 Swiss, Mary Queen of Scots, and if you look up Mary Queen of Scots online, you'll see this very um, contemporary young woman playing her, and I really wanted to find it, but I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't find it anywhere, and I um, went to my library, my magic librarians who usually are able to find anything, and they were unable to find it for me either. So if you've seen it, please give us a review on Facebook. The reviews I read were not very good, but... There's a 1936 movie starring Katherine Hepburn. Hepburn! Super famous name in the Mary Stewart legacy. (laughs) And then, of course, 2007's Elizabeth the Golden Age, starring Kate Blanchett's Samantha Morton plays Mary with a very pronounced Scottish accent. (laughs) Enjoy that. Now can we talk about rain? Uh, okay, so here's this is me, Beckett. I know absolutely nothing about rain. I'm not yeah. ever going to look at it. Okay, well, I looked at it a while back. I had watched a couple of episodes just to kind of roll my eyes at it, and um, it's it, historically it's so not accurate. There's these little teeny tiny bits of fact that are interwoven. You know, you do have Mary, and you do have Francis, but. Um, no, the costumes, there was no strapless dresses. There was no uncorseted dresses. They had hoops and things underneath. There was no naked arms. There was no sheer fabric. Um, everything back in the day was very constructed. And on rain, it's gorgeous prom gown. So um, as far, if you go into rain and think that you're going to be getting educated, you can't. However, I will confess that I did get a little addicted to it, and I did binge quite a few episodes because it's it's an addictive teen soap opera with beautiful dresses and dashing men. Um, and once you take out of your mind that you're expecting any reality, um, it's actually kind of a good watch. I'm sorry. I didn't want to like it, and I don't as far as being historically accurate, but I'm able to say, no, this isn't even close to history, so I'm going to watch it. That was my rant about rain. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, mean, I, I have more, but... <laughs> like I can't add anything when I don't it know starts, anything about When it. the show... I mean, Francis, he, w- he would have been dead by the time that he was the age of the very handsome man, and his stepbrother, Bash? Bash? 
didn't even exist. They changed the four Marys names to these really contemporary, trendy names. It's just, I know, it's, but as a TV, as a teen TV show, it's good. I don't think I could watch a teen TV show if you paid me money, unless you count Gilmore Girls. No, you can't count Gilmore. No, the writing is too short. No. And I'm going to recommend another a podcast that's out there. Um, it's not necessarily related to Mary, but it's the Renaissance English History Podcast. Um, and since we covered the Tudors, they've done a number of shows on them, or she has, um, as well as one on Renaissance-era childbirth and pregnancy, which I thought was awesome. So I would recommend that podcast. But the childbirth part probably wasn't that awesome. No, probably not, nor the pregnancy part. <laughs> um, okay, so it is a very curious and magical thing that Mary Queen of Scots did her whole life. She had this saying, in my end is my beginning, embroidered on her cloth of estate. She used it throughout her life, and it symbolizes the eternity of life after death. And it was said that she took it based on the emblem of her grandpapa-in-law, Francois I, the one, you know, that beat up old Henry VIII at the cloth of gold, the salamander. And the salamander, according to magic, at the end of its life, burns itself out so that a new life may be born. And Mary, having seen that her life was to end as a martyr to her faith, left behind her son to carry on and her son, the new life in question, did in fact join the kingdoms that she had been fighting to put together for her whole life. Thanks for listening. Bye. Follow us in all the usual places with a flashing arrow this month to our Books We Recommend board on Pinterest. Special thanks to special dudes J.D. Thomas and Bill Rainey for their secret and invaluable assistance. And to our new friends at the Panoply Network. Thanks for circling us in. We. Still don't know exactly what that is, but we're glad to be a part of your family.